Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we will finally conclude our discussion of the anarchy in Samarra. The crisis was not resolved by some deft political or diplomatic breakthrough, nor did a single party dominate the rest. Instead, the conflict burned itself out. Years of devastation impoverished the state to the extent that there was hardly anything left to fight over. Furthermore, the absence of the caliphate's forces led to the rise of strong challengers across the ummah, ones which could easily best the disunited Abbasid armies. These pressures meant that the caliph's men had to get their act together fast. The only question was how. Episode 72 Al-Muhdadi and the Settling of the Dust Looking back from the vantage point of 869, it is clear that nobody profited from al-Mutawakkil's assassination eight years earlier. The Abbasids were the biggest losers, and while the Turks did pull off their risky gambit, their newfound control over the state left them more divided than ever before. The old guard perished in the ensuing competition, and the next generation inherited their deadly dynamics. There's a tragic and twisted symmetry in how al-Mu'taz took revenge on Wasif and little Bugha, the men who had killed his father and father-in-law, only for him to be ruined by their respective son and son-in-law, Salih ibn Wasif. Our narrative today will describe how the final year of this dark chapter in Abbasid history played out, and what changes had to take place for the caliphate to leave its self-destructive patterns behind. The caliph's role in these events was quite limited, and the ummah's fate remained in the hands of his influential military commanders. By this point, Saleh ibn Wasif and Musa ibn Bugha were the two main figures. Baikabak and his brother Muflih were second tier, and there were other, lesser leaders surrounding these men as well. It's worth noting that while no caliph had managed to install a successor since al-Mu'tasim, the sons of the top generals seamlessly inherited their father's positions. Yet another example of the role reversal between the Turks and their nominal masters during this period. In June of 869, the court of al-Mu'taz was violated by Saleh ibn Wasif who arrested the caliph's top officials and installed his own man in charge of the exhausted treasury. Our primary sources all point to Saleh as the main figure behind this, but he wasn't acting alone. United in poverty, the troops had formed a temporary alliance so they could shake down the Abbasid court for their wages. Musa ibn Bugha and Muflih were away on campaign against the Hashemites in Daylam, Rai, and Tabaristan but their respective brothers, Muhammad and Baikabak, joined Saleh ibn Wasif in his move against the caliph. A month later, al-Mu'taz was approached by some of the troops who promised to rid him of the troublesome Saleh if he paid them 50,000 dinar. 
Last time, I named these forces as the Maghariba, Faraghina, and Ushrufsaniya, but others are implicated in different narrations. The caliph wrote to his mother asking for the money, but she rebuffed his request, saying she had none to spare. The troops were not amused, and they lost their patience a few days later. They tortured their liege for the crime of being broke, and Al-Mu'taz suffered a terrible end at the young age of 22. Obviously, the caliph's gruesome murder didn't solve anything, but we ought to dispense with the formality of naming his successor before we delve further into the crisis. The sources justifiably treat the selection of the latest Abbasid caliph as a trifling detail. Al-Yaqubi simply says that the military leaders agreed that there was none better than the son of Al-Wathiq, and the 36-year-old was given the job and dubbed Al-Muhtadi Billah, he who takes God as his guide. Although his father was a caliph, we don't really know anything about Al-Muhtadi's childhood. He doesn't come up at all until his predecessor's reign, when narrations begin to mention him as a constant critic of Al-Mu'taz. Some say Al-Muhtadi was understandably upset about the mistreatment his clan had to endure from his cousin, while others say he was doing his best to appeal to the Turks as a candidate to replace the caliph. There's a lot of confusion around this time, so it is difficult to be certain either way. Al-Muhtadi was happy to leave all executive decisions to Salih ibn Wasif and his men, and his lack of intervention in administrative matters made him a lot like Al-Musta'in. He distinguished himself from that last puppet by emphasizing the religious aspect of his role. Instead of indulging in a life of pleasure as we've come to expect of a caliph, Al-Muhtadi attempted to get closer to his ummah. He expelled all entertainers from the capital had the many beasts in the caliph's menagerie put down and brought back courts of grievance. The caliph presided over these personally. Regular folks could seek an audience with him most any day to ask for redress over whatever issues they were up against. Although nothing significant came out of these people courts, and there was rarely anything the caliph could do to ameliorate the conditions of his subjects, al-Muhtadi's policy proved quite popular. Now that we've dispensed with the trifle of naming the new Abbasid leader, let us turn our attention back to what mattered more than anything else in 869 Iraq. The money. I found the story about Al-Mu'taz being only 50,000 dinar away from coming out on top enticing, and I can totally see why it survived the test of time. Sadly, I have to admit that it's not very convincing when you consider the sequence of events. The violent removal of his vizier and secretaries by the brash Salih ibn Wasif shows how little standing and support the caliph commanded. These officials had not been holding back any money in the treasury, and their expropriations did not yield much wealth either. Now that Salih was in charge, he was the one being hounded by the troops for their pay, and it didn't look like he could deliver. The soldiers who offered to take him out for the caliph were probably just trying to coax some money out of the beleaguered Al-Mu'taz. It's even conceivable that the whole thing was a setup. The caliph was by no means on the cusp of victory. He turned to his mother for his ransom, 
and she likely denied him in a bid to stay off the Turkish radar. She became Saleh's next target anyway, and we find an impressive variety of theories purporting to explain how her wealth was discovered. She, who could not spare 50,000 just weeks earlier to save her son, had a million or two stashed away, and its expropriation by Saleh in August led to renewed conflict between the Turks. The sum was substantial, but not nearly enough to go around, so the leader used it strategically to maximize his own support. When Musa ibn Bugha and Muflih heard about what had happened to al-Mu'taz and his mother's riches being monopolized by Saleh, they decided to abandon their campaign in the east and return to Samarra. Saleh encouraged the caliph to regard their departure as a conspiracy against him, and al-Muhtadi gave a pietistic sermon about how Musa and Muflih had sinned against the will of God by disobeying their caliph's orders. He accused them of bringing discord to his ummah and branded them enemies of Islam. All this religious posturing counted for exactly nothing. When the two commanders returned to Samarra, they were quickly joined by their brothers, and Saleh immediately went into hiding. Troops were sent to collect the caliph from his people's court, and Musa, who emerged as the leading figure from that camp, made him sign an oath that he would never join forces with Saleh again. The oath is dated December 869. While we're not explicitly told why Saleh went into hiding, we can surmise that he expected the other leaders to confront him, demanding money he didn't have, or perhaps had and didn't want to share. One narration claims he wrote a letter pleading innocence, saying he had already distributed the money he had come across, but predictably, nobody believed him. We're fortunate enough to find some estimates for the sizes of the different factions. Saleh ibn Wasif had the largest force on paper, but only a few hundred of his 5,000 troops were prepared to fight against other Turks. Musa ibn Bugha had about half that overall figure, but his 2,500 men were battle-hardened veterans who unflinchingly followed their general's orders. These numbers may sound modest, but at their peak a decade or so ago, the Turks never totaled more than 40,000. By now, there was less than 20,000 of them left, but that's my own estimate, not a reference from our primary sources. Thousands had left Iraq in service of other leaders, like Ahmad ibn Tulun in Egypt, for example. Baikabak and his brother Muflih each commanded a thousand or two, and the rest were free agents, not connected with any group. These unaffiliated soldiers were a new phenomenon and they were men who had grown beyond disenchanted with their leadership, and they now viewed the Turkish commanders as enemies who were only interested in exploiting the rank and file for personal gain. The mob which killed Wasif was made up of such men, and in January 870, they sort of unionized. They got together, agreed on a list of changes they all wanted to see, and insisted on communicating with the caliph through a Abbasid liaison circumventing their traditional leaders. These negotiations are described in an impressive level of detail, but we won't go through them play by play. The unaffiliated Turks number about 5,000 in total, 
and their demands are quite revealing and surprisingly enlightened. They come down to the disempowerment of the military commanders, stripping them of any control they had over administration and of their considerable holdings. From their point of view, the Turkish leaders only used their wealth to build up their own power, spilling Turkish blood heedlessly in their insatiable quest for more. It's a shame that this progressive chance for peace came at such an inopportune time. Al-Muhtadi wasn't the best caliph to take advantage of its potential, and the situation was volatile besides. Unopposed, the Karajite rebellion in the north had grown significantly and now threatened territory dangerously close to Samarra. Someone had to go deal with it. Musa ibn Bugha was the obvious choice, but he refused to leave before Saleh ibn Wasif was accounted for. Meanwhile, Saleh's men were growing more anxious every day their leader was missing in action, and they blew off steam with acts of vandalism and violence. The unaffiliated camp ballooned in size until it lost cohesion, and its members quarreled over pretty much everything after that. It was a very tense January, but it ended with the surprise discovery of Saleh's hiding spot by Musa's men and his immediate execution. Over 17 million silver dirham were discovered and distributed among the troops, quelling their demands for a short while. Saleh's death leaves only four main commanders, two pairs of brothers at that, Musa and Muhammad, the sons of Big Bugha, and Baikabak and Muflih. In April, Musa and Muflih, the more martial pair, led the caliph's armies against al-Musawir, leader of the Karajite rebellion in the north. Their departure seems to have given al-Muhtadi the wrong idea. I'm not sure why, but the caliph now believed that his position was somehow executive? Is that why they called it the Abbasid Caliphate? But all jokes aside, the so far apolitical al-Muhtadi tried to play the Turks against one another. He summoned by Quebec and appointed him in charge of all of Musa and Muflih's men, ordering him to go to the front, relieve them, and send them back either dead or in chains. If you think this sounds crazy, let me assure you that this is the sanest of five different versions of Al-Muhtadi's end. Baikabak thus went to find Musa and his brother Muflih in the north. Not to carry out his orders, but to warn them of this uncharacteristic spurt of Abbasid ambition. The three commanders agreed that the caliph had to be replaced, and their plan was for Baikabak to go back to Samarra and pretend to be on al-Muhtadi's side to lull him into a sense of security while the other two finished up their campaign against Musawir and the Karajites. Things did not work out as planned, however. The caliph was annoyed at Baikabak's return empty-handed, and immediately ordered he be put to death. He didn't stop there. After that, he had Muhammad ibn Mugha arrested on charges of corruption. And although only 20,000 dinar were found in his possession, he was also executed. Both high-profile commanders met their end in June. Musa and Muflih defeated the Karajites several times during the months they spent in Mesopotamia but al-Musawir evaded capture at every turn. 
they might have eventually caught him and ended the movement if they had stayed longer. But after receiving news that the caliph had executed their brothers, they packed up their armies and beat a furious retreat back to Samarra. To his credit, Al-Muhtadi met the Turks on the battlefield, but he never stood a chance and was promptly defeated by the 10,000 men Musa and Muflih led against him. He refused to abdicate, and the caliph was tortured to death, insisting upon the sanctity of his office in late June 870. Although it'll be a retrospective designation, the date is widely considered to mark the end of the anarchy in Samarra. Now that we're on the other side of it, I feel like we need a sweeping recap where we zoom way, way out in order to properly frame the forces which precipitated and shaped this whole mess. It'll also give me a chance to review an assessment I made about the root cause of Al-Mutawakkil's assassination, which is incidentally a pretty good place for us to start. So let's take it from the top. Why did the Turks first turn on the Abbasids? In al-Mu'tasim's original setup of the armies in 836, he had them hived off from the rest of society, making their connection to the caliph their only tether to the wider ummah. A new capital was created to partition them away from the general population, and Turkish slave girls were bought for them as wives so they wouldn't wed any locals. Their entire existence was facilitated by the state. All they had to do was earned their caliph's approval. While that's already an insanely high-stakes relationship, it wasn't a problem during al-Mu'tasim and al-Wathiq's reigns. Those two Abbasids seems to have had a strong affinity for the Turks. Although we can't say the same for al-Mutawakkid, he needed them even more than his predecessors had. It's true that he made moves which threatened their dominance over the armies, but the Turks were still by far his most effective soldiers, and he had plenty of enemies to keep them occupied. There was no way he was going to get rid of them wholesale. He just wanted to diversify his forces so that he became less reliant on the old guard, whose long-term tenure he considered a threat. The caliph did not anticipate regicide, and he paid with his life. Now that I have a fuller appreciation of how divided the Turks really were, I find my original position, that it was a do-or-die moment for them, to have been a little too sympathetic to the aggressors. I think that sense of urgency still applies to Wasif and Little Bugha, who understood that their time was coming to an end. But they preempted the caliph to save their own skins, not their brethren, who were never in any danger. The old guard succeeded because Al-Mutawakkil had managed to alienate his son. But all it took was Al-Muntasir's sudden passing for their disunity to become apparent, highlighting how jealousy motivated their action and personal ambition took priority over everything else. When the obvious puppet Al-Musta'in was placed in charge, military discipline flew out the window and new leaders emerged from within their ranks further complicating existing rivalries. From then on out, resentment took the form of disobedient behavior among the troops they commanded. Efforts to regain control only worsened their dissatisfaction, which, despite being frequently directed towards the caliph, 
actually stemmed from envy towards other Turks. I don't want to confuse our recap, but it's worth clarifying the evolution of the relationship between the Turks and other armies while we're at it. It was during Al-Musta'in's pledging ceremony that we first hear of these other forces banding together to protest the Turkish domination of the state. They were thwarted by their powerful rivals, but the disastrous reign of the puppet caliph led to more discord among the troops than ever before, eventually culminating in the fitna between Al-Musta'in and Al-Mu'taz. Despite having been their original target, the non-Turkish troops now championed Al-Musta'in. There are several indications that most of them went to Baghdad to fight against the army of Samarra. The conflict thus had a sorting effect on the armies, and the arrival of these non-Turks led many of Wasif and little Bugha's men to go back over to the other side. It seems like the only thing that reversed Turkish disunity was the risk of their being replaced by some other military force. These defections gave Al-Mu'taz the upper hand over his cousin, and his side steadily gained the advantage as the siege of Baghdad ground on. Paradoxically, he also benefited from the perception that he was out to get Wasif and little Bugha. So non-Turks eventually got on board as well, believing that he was going to take out the old guard once he had consolidated his rule. This turned out to be an illusion and any semblance of authority Al-Mu'taz had wielded during the fitna immediately vanished after it was over. The Turks reverted to their competition over power and resources, and the non-Turks to their status as junior partners. Al-Mu'taz managed to instrumentalize the many divisions to further his own interests for a short while, but in the final crisis of his reign, when he was forced to abdicate by Saleh ibn Wasif, the soldiers were united in clamoring for their pay. It seems like the non-Turks had learned from bitter experience that cooperation yielded greater rewards than competition. Their unity was predictably short-lived, and the inability of the state to pay salaries led to bitter infighting for what would prove to be the last time. The only remarkable thing about the caliphate's final year of dysfunction was when the rank-and-file tried to unite and negotiate with the caliph against their own commanders. The hapless al-Muhtadi did not have the wherewithal to build on their initiative, so it did not go anywhere. But as we'll see, the incoming administration learned a thing or two from their demands. Musa took out Saleh, and it's noteworthy how little the latter's men cared about his death after they had been paid from their master's hidden wealth. Following nine years of darkness, there was finally some light at the end of the tunnel. Musa led the united armies to fight off the dangerously close Karajite rebellion in the north, but he had to turn back to find a more reliable caliph a few months later. In a bid to expand his merely nominal authority into something more, Al-Muhtadi had tried to stir up trouble and had to be shut down. The Turks took him out picked another cousin to replace him, and returned to the crucial work of batting away the many empire-ending threats which surrounded the caliphate. Perhaps the best use of our last few minutes together today 
is for us to catalog the major challenges facing the Abbasid armies. Iraq was surrounded by foes from every direction. Hashemites in the north, Byzantines in the west, Bedouin Karajites in the south, and the new Safarid menace in the east. Before they could do anything about these formidable threats, the Abbasids first had to quell these savage movements raging within their capital province. Its north had been lost to Mesopotamian Karajites, its south to a fervent slave rebellion, and its center was still smoldering from the recent fires of war. Baghdad was in an especially bad way as the downfall of the Tahirids had robbed it of its only source of revenue and leadership. It's already a long list, but I could go on. Honestly, I'm not sure which of these we'll tackle together first. I'm well into the research, but these conflicts will burn for decades and I'm still working on a way to organize the material sensibly. I'm also in Lebanon for the summer, so I might get a little distracted and delayed. Wish me luck, and join me next time, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. <laughs>